0: Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly.
1: Just throw them in, gonna create a flavor of its own. For me, this restaurant here represents like a Thanksgiving to teach people that there are more, like what's in your backyard.
2: Why do you feel it's important for this generation to know her story?
3: You know, so many women in that time period of our history are unknown and unnamed, and she took freedom into her own hands because she had to, as black women have all over the world at all times. So he was
4: a writer, a printer, a publisher, um, a scientist, an inventor, diplomat, a statesman, um, and he knew a lot about
5: a lot of things. So today we would call him a major influencer.
4: Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes.
5: Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island
6: PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. As we near Thanksgiving, many are thinking about a dinner of turkey with all the fixings. But to some, the traditions of today are a relatively new concept. Tonight we meet a Native
5: American chef who shares with us how she celebrates her heritage by cooking, harvesting, and foraging from the land. We've been harvesting quahogs for about 12,000 years.
1: These are one of the first things I learned how to do, harvest quahogs.
7: On a warm November morning... Can I borrow your knife, PK? Chef Sherry Pocknet is making seafood chowder. So with quahogs, we used the shell
1: for currency back in the 1600s, 1700s. We just utilize everything in what we do, as far as harvesting from the
7: earth. At her restaurant, Sly Fox Den, quahogs aren't the only thing on the menu. Use the pan for your scrambled eggs, okay?
1: We make our own venison sausage. We have something called the indigenous, and we put it on fry bread or we can put it on corn cakes. You could use duck eggs, you could use quail eggs. Those are other different eggs that I'm trying to introduce to people. Beautiful. We do a duck hash. We do uh, roasted rabbits. We do um, smoked salmon, um, smoked bluefish, all that kind of stuff.
7: The menu is inspired by the flavors of a childhood lived close to the land. I grew up in the 60s. I'm the daughter to
1: both indigenous Wampanoag people, my mom and my dad. My dad was the chief of our tribe. He was amazing. He fought for our Aboriginal hunting
7: and fishing rights. The Wampanoag nation once included all of southeastern Massachusetts and eastern Rhode Island. They were the first indigenous people that the Pilgrims met. Contact with Europeans led to disease and war that killed huge portions of the Wampanoag population and threatened their ways of life. But preserving those ancient traditions was something that Pocnet learned early on. I had, you know, parents that wanted us
1: to learn how to live by the season, how to you know, um, take care of ourselves. We would all pile in my dad's truck, probably in the back of the truck, with our dip nets, with our herring nets, and go to the river to see if there was herring in there. And if there were, saying, is the river black, means it's loaded. That means you can jump in the water and you can probably scoop up two herring in each hand. Fun, that was like, one of the highlights of our year.
7: And at home, the catch of the day even made it into her toy oven. I was
1: probably six or seven, and I got a Susie homemaker, and that was the best thing that anybody could ever give me. There would be quahogs in there. There would be, you know, deer meat or rabbit. Whatever was in that refrigerator was going in my little pan, and I put it probably in that easy-peak oven for an hour. So I knew I was the chef of a lifetime I was gonna be.
7: But by the age of nine, she began to feel differently about the food her family was eating, particularly for Thanksgiving dinner.
1: We had raccoon, okay, and I love raccoon. That wasn't, but no, I want a turkey like everybody else. And it was really embarrassing. And you know, when your friends are asking you, what did you have? I had, I had raccoon or I had muskrat or, you know, s-
7: stuff that my dad literally caught the day before. When did you come to appreciate that, oh, this is my indigenous culture and this is something to be proud of?
1: Right, not until later, not until I ran a cultural class myself. I just didn't realize how valuable the teachings that my parents Did um, until I could talk about it until someone asked me about you know what about yet when they when they ask you about your childhood and you tell them that you ate this and that and you hunted and you fished that's not the average child I'm talking about a child starting at the age of three and four you know what I mean frogging
7: what who don't like frog legs. Today, Pocknett sees her restaurant as a way of sharing her heritage with everyone.
6: Ooh, perfect. The venison
7: sausage and the corn cakes. I get this every time I
5: come here. They are gonna have to come back for
8: dinner because I would like to try the rabbit. Yeah.
7: Many of her dishes have a story behind them. Just throw them in. It's gonna create a flavor of its own. Like her three sisters' succotash. So three sisters,
1: our corn squash and beans, and they were a gift to us from the crow, the bird, kikonkia. That's how you say crow, kikonkia, in my language. Thank God we haven't lost our language. Losing a language is like losing a tribe.
7: Another dish speaks to the history of colonization. Fry bread was originally a Navajo dish invented when they were forcibly relocated. The Indians were starving.
1: They moved them off to a reservation where there's no water, there's no, there's no uh, vegetation, and, you know. It was hard to survive. So they were starving, they were getting sick, so they needed food. So the government had to... they dropped off some flour and some lard, and told those Indians to figure it out, evidently.
7: The problems persist to this very day. According to the partnership with Native Americans, at least 60 reservations in the U.S. don't have enough to eat. The situation has helped spur a movement called food sovereignty. The idea is revive traditional ways of growing, foraging, and cooking food saving our old
1: recipes and, and cooking the old way without colonizing our food. Like, we want to go back to, you know, before Europeans got here, how we're eating. I'm trying to teach, you know, my people all the different things that there were. Like, you probably never heard of a Ju- Jerusalem artichoke or a sunchoke, right, or, or a ground nut. A lot of people use that, what is that, roundup, for weeds. Do you know those weeds are dandelion greens that they're getting rid of? That's food and
7: medicine. Pocknett believes in using native plants and animals. Lots
1: of good stuff out
7: here. Because of health codes, she gets most of her ingredients from distributors. You can put what you want in your succotash. But Pocknett still serves some family-caught fish on the menu. So for
1: me, this restaurant here represents, it represents me and my family and it represents my upbringing and it represents like a Thanksgiving to teach people that there are more, like what's in your backyard? You know what I mean? I I wanna teach people that there's more than chicken steak and pork chops.
7: Oh, now a grandmother, her goal is to pass down her knowledge to at least seven generations. Wow, nice
1: throw. You have to know how to sustain yourselves. You have to know how to, to um, teach your children. Those are all life ways that were passed down to us, you know, through oral history, through oral traditions. Those are the things that your, your child is never going to forget and he's going to be or she's going to be happy to teach someone else.
6: Up next, the pastry queen of Rhode Island, said to have been born to an African prince around 1739. Duchess Quamino, as she became known, was sold into slavery and brought to Newport in 1750, where she cooked for the Channing family. Her legacy had a profound impact on the people around her, part of the hidden history of her time. Contributing reporter David Wright has her remarkable story.
2: This is a story about one woman's recipe for stirring things up in colonial Rhode Island, baking her way to a better life. Why do you feel it's important for this generation to know her story? You
3: know, so many women in that time period of our history are unknown and unnamed, and she took... Freedom into her own hands, because she had to, as black women have all over the world at all times.
2: She was known as Duchess Quimino.
9: Uh,
2: yes. What was her actual name? Charity. Charity. Charity,
9: yes. And no one remembers that.
2: <laughs> Charity Cuamino.
9: Charity Quimino, but she was known as Duchess.
2: Teresa Guzman Stokes, who goes by Sonny, is president of the Rhode Island Black Heritage Society.
9: Duchess Quimino arrived in Newport uh, sometime around, I'm gonna say about the 1750s, 1760. She was probably between the ages of 10 and 13 years old. So quite young. Quite young. Uh, Most of those that arrived here were children. And then she was immediately enslaved into the Channing family. And uh, she stayed there for probably a little over 20 years.
2: There are no pictures of Duchess or of her husband, John Quimino.
9: They met in Bible study. And they had five children, and then he wins a lottery and he purchases his freedom.
2: He's free, she's not. Yes. Their children, would they have been born slaves? Yes. By the condition of the mother. By the condition of the mother. Yes. John Cuamino had his freedom and a bright future ahead of him. He may well have been the first black American college student. He'd caught the eye of some of Newport's most prominent colonial citizens. Ezra Stiles, one of the founders of Brown University, and an early president of Yale. And Samuel Hopkins, pastor of Newport's first congregational church. Samuel Hopkins
9: didn't believe in slavery. And he he preached against it at a time when no one was saying anything about it. We consider him one of the first abolitionists. Hmm. And he decided that the best way to convert Africans to Christianity was to send missionaries who were African, and so he decided that he was going to choose two men who were of, you know, not only well versed in the Bible and the church, but that could read and write and study. And those two men were John Quamino and Bristol Yama. And they sent them to what is now Princeton, the College of New Jersey, and they studied there. But the Revolutionary War broke out, ended their studies.
2: His Princeton studies cut short by the war, Quamino enlisted as a privateer, hoping to buy freedom for his wife and children. Tragically, it was not meant to be. John Quamino died in battle August 1779.
3: He was gone. And since he was gone, <laughs> that meant that I needed to find a way to be free and to have freedom for my children. <laughs>
2: Valerie Tutson of the Rhode Island Black Storytellers picks up the tale, performing a monologue in the voice of Duchess Quimino.
3: And then I thought about the thing that I know how to do the best, bake pies and cakes and cookies. And so I went to the Channings, and I asked them if it was all right for me to use the oven on the days that I didn't have to work. And they agreed. And I was able to make these things, put them in my basket and carry them to the market.
2: So she's widowed, left with five children, all of whom are enslaved. Yes. And she sounds incredibly entrepreneurial.
9: (laughs) Very much so.
2: She'd go on to be celebrated as the pastry queen of Rhode Island, famous in particular for her frosted plum cakes, said to be a favorite of George Washington. Legend has it that when he visited Newport, He had seconds. We don't have Duchess Cuamino's recipe. But is it, is this a a kind of cake that's been passed down?
5: Yes, as we
1: understand it. She would have got the fruit and molasses and everything from the West Indies because it's in the triangle.
2: Patty Martin and Sarah Peppercorn-Janes make plum cakes from their grandmother's recipe in their kitchen in Middletown. Known as the English Cousins, because they are actually second cousins, they run a brisk mail order business at Christmas time.
1: Well, we, we've got an order from Japan um, this year, which is, uh, and uh, they've been to Turkey,
4: Australia. They've sent us to
6: Austria. Brazil. Yeah. Um, Sweden,
5: Sweden, yeah.
2: The recipe handed down from one generation to the next.
1: And this is my grandmother's cookbook, first published in 1927. And it's exactly, almost exactly, except for the glacé cherries to
4: our recipe.
2: Duchess Cuamino would not have had an electric mixer, of course. It would have been hard work to do this with a wooden spoon. Very hard work,
6: and especially if you were in a cold climate or a cold kitchen. where your butter was really hard. It it would have probably taken her, could have taken her close to an hour just to get through through this stage here.
2: She wouldn't have had brown sugar either. She would have used molasses, part of the triangle trade that entrenched slavery as one of the early profit centers of the American colonies. Okay,
4: that's just going to go right in here.
2: The whole concoction baked at a relatively low temperature for three hours. Frosted with marzipan and royal icing, the results are worth the wait. Mmm. That's delicious.
7: It is
2: good, isn't it? And it's soft enough that you could eat it with wooden teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Especially delicious. When you realize that cakes like these help Duchess Cuamino earn enough money to buy freedom for herself and her five children. Impressive, isn't she? Yeah, mm-hmm.
6: Incredible. I read mean, It's amazing. It's a lovely story.
5: Yeah. But baking cakes, she. Yeah, that's what we do. A girl after my own <laughs> heart.
2: And why is it important for us to know Duchess Cuamino's story and the story of people of her time and situation?
9: You know George Washington's story. You know Thomas Jefferson's story. You know the story of most of the white traders that were here. It gives you a sense of belonging to this country, doesn't it? I think that people of color deserve that as well. It's important that they know that there were people who stood up against enslavement. It's important that they know that there were entrepreneurial women early on. That's important for girls regardless
2: of their race. One monument to Duchess Quamino that survives to this day, almost worn bare by two centuries of Newport weather, he can just make out intelligent, industrious, affectionate, honest, and of exemplary piety, deceased June 29, 1804, aged 65 years, the epitaph written by the son of her former owners.
9: And he later in life, in his memoirs, credits her and another African with teaching him everything he knew about God and the abolition of slavery.
2: William Ellery Channing would eventually go on to be one of the founders of the Unitarian Church, the church that inspired Emerson and Thoreau and Transcendentalism, a proud New England legacy that clearly owes a debt to the pastry queen of Rhode Island.
3: Tell the story. Let the world know about the family, Kwame No.
5: You can find the plum cakes and other holiday treats made by the English cousins. Just go to their website, EnglishChristmasCake.com. We turn now to a founding father and one New England town's library. Just over the northern Rhode Island border sits Franklin, Massachusetts, named more than 240 years ago in honor of Benjamin Franklin. The great American statesman decided to send a present to the townspeople. While Franklin's gift was not what the citizens had originally hoped for, it would ultimately influence the founding of public education in America.
4: People always want to see the books and they want to touch them and they want to know if I've ever touched them. It's it's almost some um, like a sacred um, artifact sort of in town.
5: Reference librarian Vicki Earls says this historic collection of books is so precious it is kept under lock and key in a glass display case. This is it.
4: This is our baby.
5: The town of Franklin, Massachusetts treasures these books from the 1700s because they are the genesis of the first and oldest public free lending library in continuous operation in America. A revolutionary idea at the time, the volumes were a gift from famous patriot Benjamin Franklin. So he was a writer, a
4: printer, a publisher, um, a scientist, an inventor, diplomat, a statesman, um, and he knew a lot about a lot of
5: things. So today we would call him a major influencer. Oh, absolutely, yes. (laughs) He was a rock star. He was so popular, in fact, there are 31 towns in the United States today named after Benjamin Franklin. But Franklin, Massachusetts, was the first.
4: And this happened in 1778 when the town was founded. A document was presented to the Mass State Legislature for naming the town, and somebody along the way crossed out the original intended name, which was Exeter, and wrote in Franklin.
5: Franklin's community leaders may have had an ulterior motive for bestowing the honor, according to longtime historian James Johnston.
0: Well, let me tell you about that. The local preacher of the Congregational Church, decided that if they gave the honor to Dr. Franklin, that he would give them a bell for their new meeting house, maybe one of Paul Revere's specials. That would be nice, a nice bronze
5: bell. The bell request for the church steeple was engineered by powerful minister, the Reverend Nathaniel Emmons. Benjamin Franklin replied by sending the now historic collection of books instead. They were loaned out from the Congregational Church and various other buildings around town until the Franklin Library was built in 1904. So why did Benjamin Franklin send books instead of a bell? He explained in a letter to the town, and one line is inscribed on his statue outside the library. He reasoned, sense being preferable to sound. Well, what he meant was, you know, would they rather know
0: something of value or do they just want to listen to the ding-dong and the steeple. I guess that's what he had in mind. One of the biggest part of the collection is
4: the works of John Locke. And this is the time time period in history of the Enlightenment. And John Locke, his theories, his political theories were a big part of that. The person that sort of came up with the theories of um, all people having the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's one of his concepts. And a lot of what he wrote ended up in the uh, Constitution almost verbatim.
5: There is another chapter to this story. Turn the page forward a few years, and a Franklin farm boy borrows these books. He was born and raised here.
4: He was mostly self-educated and mostly self-educated through the Benjamin Franklin collection.
5: That student was Horace Mann, considered the father of public education in America.
4: He believed that all children have the right to
0: education and that education should be tax supported. Not only public education for white people, but he thought that Native Americans, people of color, uh, women should have the equal opportunity to secure a good education. And when he became the president of Antioch College, uh, he opened the doors to women to Native Americans, to people of color, all on an equal basis.
5: Unfortunately, Benjamin Franklin never got to visit his town in Massachusetts. He died in 1790, shortly after donating the book collection. What do you think Ben Franklin would have thought of his namesake town? I think he would be happy. Established a very
0: nice home for his books, and I think that he would have been happy to know that his books started something very, very positive. I think he was hoping that somebody in this town would prefer sense to sound.
6: Finally tonight, Providence Journal columnist, Mark Patinkin brings us his thoughts on the new minor league soccer stadium. You heard it right, soccer.
8: Just south of where the Paw Sox ballpark was supposed to be built in Pawtucket, but never was, you'll see a vision of hope. The once-drab eastern bank of the Seekonk River is being prepped for Rhode Island's new minor league soccer stadium. I know that phrase, soccer stadium, has likely gotten some viewers already ready to send me angry comments because it's controversial. Taxpayers have no business helping private developers. Well, we heard that during the Paw Sox debate, and man did it cost us. A team that used to be a Rhode Island treasure has now revitalized Worcester because they had the vision to build something great. Did we learn a lesson? Barely. The soccer stadium passed on a razor-thin vote by Rhode Island Commerce, and critics are still saying the $60 million taxpayer hit is outrageous. But that number is deceiving. It's from a mix of tax breaks over decades, and the developers have pledged hundreds of millions more to transform Pawtucket's riverfront into a mini-city within a city. Skeptics say it'll be a bust. Unlike the Paw Sox, soccer won't draw. Well, tell that to the state's booming diverse communities who breathe and eat the sport. The new stadium plan has electrified them. I recently went to the site with Mitchell Tia, a club player who grew up in both Africa and Providence's Chad Brown projects. He got emotional as he told me the stadium has made countless folks like him feel included in Rhode Island life, giving them a sense of pride that they matter. I'm sure the controversy will continue, but to be a great state, we have to be bold enough to build great things. And I can't help but think that once the soccer stadium is finished, bringing new life to Pawtucket and building memories for fans and families, it will give Rhode Island a sense of pride as well.
6: Our thanks to Mark Patinkin. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back
5: next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly, or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms.